Hello and welcome to Nightlight. It's been said by many wise and experienced people that before any of us try to teach on prayer, first we should spend probably a whole lifetime praying. (laughs) That truth weighs on my mind a good bit as I open up this subject. As we've said before, when we refer to prayer, we're really talking about all of life with God, every aspect of it. It's almost like saying, I want to teach on life and how to live it, as to say, I want to teach on prayer and how to pray. What aspect of life are we talking about? And so, what aspect of prayer are we talking about? Well, we all know about, I guess what you might call contemplative prayer, where we quietly interact with God about the things that are deeply moving around inside of us. They may or may not be troubling things, but they're usually very private things, very intimate, precious things to us. And most people who pray at all will recognize this kind of prayer as what they are most familiar with. And I would never want to criticize that or discourage anyone from it. First of all, it's none of my business. After all, this is an intimate interaction between this person and God and should be off limits to anybody else's critique. Yet, still, there's a genuine need for addressing a potential problem with that level of prayer. If we never shine a light on a problem, the problem can remain in the dark, unchallenged and unchanged. And simply thinking thoughts up to God, or even whispering to Him our feelings, concerns, attitudes, wishes, or fears, that's that's all a good beginning. But it's not the complete picture of what Scripture means when it calls us to into prayer. As in all of life, there are other levels of potentially great good. And if we are willing to pursue them, we can enter into them. If, if we begin by opening our secret heart and intimate thoughts to God, who would criticize that? I'm not criticizing that. Of course, it's a good thing to do and will always be a part of our ongoing intimacy with God. And if that's the prayer life of a person, his or her entire life and never goes anywhere else, at least there's some real intimacy with them and God. And I'm not, again, I'm not criticizing it. But just as life has many aspects and we're called to engage more than just being quiet and living in a self-focused solitude, so in prayer we should be willing and really desiring to reach beyond our own personal inner expressions and to learn to explore higher and greater realms of prayer, which we are called to, by the way. So at the risk of bordering on sounding critical of a truly precious and valid initial form of prayer, can we say that we want to go beyond that beginning while still holding that kind of prayer as precious, intimate, and private? I don't have to stop being his child to become his warrior. I don't have to become a warrior to be his, but I will have to give up an entire dimension of life with him and also give up being a power for good on behalf of others if I choose to simply remain hidden in my secret prayer closet. For those who live with God in prayer, this is no news. Uh, I'm married to a woman who lives in intimate solitude with the Lord on on uh, every every day of her life, but she engages in all kinds of prayer battles. This is not a critique of our conformity to a certain outward regimen of prayer, but it's only an attempt to make us aware that if we are desiring to go further up and further in in prayer. It will only begin by entering into the secret place where the Father sees in secret, according to Matthew 6 and 7. Yes, of course, if we do that, it will lead eventually, though, 
into other avenues of prayer that uh, that go beyond that. That's the nature of growing up. A child can crawl up in his father's arms. A son or a daughter will always be welcomed in those arms, but he or she will have other work to do if they are maturing in fellowship with the father. They will begin to not only long for his love, but beyond that, they begin to love what he loves and they will begin to care for the things he cares for, and that happens to be the whole world. Now, we won't attempt to unpack here how we are to deal with what can be an overwhelming flood of issues that can pour in on us all at once when it comes to caring for the world. Learning how to discern that and not be drowned in it will come from practice, from engaging in prayer on that level. Teachers may offer helpful pointers from their point of view and their experience, but we will really learn best how to not drown by swimming, and we will learn to not become overwhelmed with the cries of the world God loves by praying, by learning to listen to Him. By experience, we will learn to know what is on His heart that He wants us to share with Him, and we will also be able to discern when He's saying, no, this is too big for you. Or, this is not where I want you to be in this particular battle. So we have established the fact that intimate, quiet, loving fellowship with God in prayer is not only a great beginning, but a lifelong refuge. And hopefully, we have established that that level of intimacy will automatically cause us to grow up in our concerns so that slowly but surely our intimacy with God will produce in us a maturing level of caring about what God cares about. And we will begin to learn to engage with the larger war outside our private sphere of experience. Just as a growing child begins to want to venture beyond the safety of his backyard, so we will want to learn to go out into the world in prayer. Intimate solitude with God cannot be carried on at the same time of battling. We can do either, but not at the same time. And unless we have awakened to the battle and been instructed on how to enter into it, we will naturally want to just stay in the rest and warmth of our secret place. So with that understanding, can we examine what it looks like to pray beyond our initial comfort zone? I tremble a bit at the attempt to guide others into these things. I learn from people older and wiser than me, and I've learned from living with Mary for 30 years, And I've learned from my own struggling experience that the best way to learn to pray is to pray. And instructing in prayer is sort of like instructing in any aspect of real life. It's all well and good, but the great danger is to sit and passively gather information, but never actually do it. So it would be best at this moment to stop listening to me to lay aside whatever you're doing and, and and do it. Pray. Enter in. Actually put yourself in position and say out loud to God what is in you. For instance, it might be good to find words that express your true desire to go further up and further in with God. And s- Then say that. Tell him that. If you counter that with the idea that God already knows, so why should I say it? Then you've hit on one of the most effective tools of the enemy that shuts your prayer life down. For God already knows everything, doesn't he? So if you go by that, you'll never speak a word to God. You'll never pray about anything because God already knows, doesn't he? See, relationship means sharing. And any true parent knows that we love to be told what we already know by our children. And so does God. God loves to hear from you what he already knows is inside of you. So say it to him. Tell him you want to go farther. You want to be in the heart 
and heat of the battle with him against evil. To love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Tell him that. You need to hear yourself say it. Well, again, here I am telling you what I think may be too much instruction. You should learn for yourself as you go, but I can't help it. This that I've just been saying was the foundation for me in the beginning of my prayer adventure when, as Oswald Chambers put it, I got tired of merely lounging before God and thinking my thoughts up at him, but began to learn to listen for what was on his mind and heart by allowing me to overhear it. That was my invitation to enter into it with him. Now, entering what is on his mind may be revelatory, but it also may, may be a battle to, to get there, or it may result in a battle after hearing it. And if it is a battle, something God hates that he wants dismantled, then it will be a bit of a hard work for us. This is where you enter into a place of prayer that is not relaxing, comforting, or even peaceful, but is a demanding wrestling match. You're not wrestling with God as if he's your enemy, but you're wrestling with an enemy force uh, alongside the Lord. At the risk of boring you with disclaimers, I will say once again that I'm hesitant to give instructions. Your experience will not be mine exactly, and I'm not giving a list of steps to prayer. I hate steps to this or that or keys to getting what you want from God. That kind of talk just shuts me down. Uh, it always smacks of, to me, turning intimacy with God into some kind of self-help head trip. And I don't much respond to that kind of approach. So as if I offer some concepts, just take them and digest them and see what is helpful for you, but don't turn anything I say into some kind of directive. Paul uses several terms in the Greek New Testament that make it clear that there are aspects of certain kinds of prayer that the demands of the spiritual battlefield require us to work at. I learned early on my teach from from my, my teachers that in the Tabernacle of Moses, which is a great map of spiritual reality, the priests were not to wear clothes that made them sweat, but they were to wear clothes that could breathe to keep them cool. You can see that in Ezekiel chapter 44, among other places. The obvious imagery here is that the presence of the Lord and in his service of worship, our human energy is not required. In fact, fleshly energy is of no value. In his presence is fullness of joy. But spiritual battle is not in the same category as that. When it comes to the labor pains of warfare, of retaking lost territory from the enemy or of breaking the power of the enemy, it is not that our human energy is all of a sudden helpful or required, but if I can say it this way, God does want us to learn to participate in what he's doing. He doesn't need us, but he does want us. And in certain aspects of spiritual conflict, our human effort is called upon. For it is the exerting of our will and energy in cooperation with the Holy Spirit that brings heaven and earth together in agreement with God's heart and purpose and brings pressure against the enemy. In previous sessions where we have looked at the dance between God's sovereign power and our human wills, we've talked about the two wrong-headed opposition extremes. On the one hand, God is seen as a megalomaniac controller and uses uh, us as nothing more than puppets. On the other extreme, making God a willing but somewhat limited 
power that we entreat with our hopes of gaining some ground, but we're not quite sure how it's going to turn out. Now, neither of these views is scriptural. The truth is that God is sovereign, and in that sovereignty, he has established an order in which man has the power to choose freely with the help of grace to join with God in what God wants to accomplish. And if we do, God's purpose is moved forward. If we don't, God will not just go ahead anyway and do it without us as if it didn't really matter if we prayed any, or not. So a lot that should unfold and move forward for good never happens, not because it's mysteriously not God's will, but because we simply refuse to do the earthly link that joins with and fulfills heaven's purposes. At some point, we will need to dig into Jesus' reference to binding and loosing and what that really means. But that's a demanding study all by itself, and we will have to tackle it later on. This doesn't mean if we don't see a breakthrough immediately, it's evidence that either we didn't pray enough, which is a concept all its own that shows a lack of understanding of prayer. Or we didn't pray hard enough, which is kind of the same thing on steroids. Or it must not have been God's will or it would have happened. Now that, that's another concept that's completely out of bounds. A lot of things don't happen that are God's will. And a lot of things do happen that are not God's will. We've talked about that already in previous studies. We're childish in our thinking if we are defeated in prayer by that wrong-headed response to conflict. This kind of shallow black-and-white thinking leads to, first to self-condemnation, we didn't pray enough, or it leads to a diminishing trust in God's character. God, God's mysterious, and sometimes he does the right thing, and sometimes he doesn't, and we just don't know why, and we just have to learn to bow to it, that kind of thing. But it finally leads, overall, ultimately, to a kind of shallow religious formalism regarding prayer. And so that we, go, we just go through the motions of praying. But we refuse to seriously enter the arena of prayer, the kind that we're talking about here. Sadly, most of us, most of the church, has either settled for this kind of thing I just described or never thought anything about any any other way of praying or, or tried to really pray and got easily defeated by the powers of darkness and pushback and so just tucked our tails and ran back into religion. Or, worst of all, we just got hurt, bitter, and angry and quit praying altogether. Prayer is not magic. Prayer is not an easy believism formula so that we rub the magic prayer lamp and expect the genie to appear and zap the situation. Now, some prayers do bring amazing, fast, dramatic results, but most of the time there are many layers of resistance, both human, demonic, and natural, that have to be worked out by the many-faceted wisdom of God. Because as we have stated already, God is not a programmer who moves us around like little robots. We live in a universe inhabited by not only humans whose wills get in the way, but also angelic beings and maybe even other beings who we don't know about fully. God has made us all in his image and likeness, which means we have a kind of freedom that God respects. In a way we cannot conceptualize clearly, God has separated himself from us, so to speak, while imparting a degree of his being in us, so to speak, so that we are free to choose opposite of him or even against him. Apart from him, we could not exist. Yet he supports our existence of freedom from him so that we can be able to choose. And that, that freedom sets in motion a whole lot of difficult, 
hard to understand conflicting scenarios. So there are many things going on when we pray. There are many things that we will not be able to see happen when we do not pray. (laughs) As has been said before, you can be sure of one thing, 100% of the prayers you don't pray will not get answered. When we quietly spend time with God as a child with a father and we are dealing with our inner heart issues or just being with him, that's wonderful and good and right. But eventually life and conflict within us and around us will draw us into a place where we must engage a kind of praying that cannot be carried out with just contemplation. The atmosphere of God's presence is wonderful, but it is not prayer on this level. In the high level of prayer, and when I say high level, I'm not talking about some kind of esoteric superiority that only the initiated can enter into. I just mean we want to go higher. And in the high level of prayer, which I'm attempting to awaken in us, we do not simply spread our thoughts out before God. That certainly has its place, but not here. In this level of praying, we offer up our heart and mind in words in a way that presses upon God, and if I can say it this way, makes an impression on Him. I mean, I'm having to use language that obviously is not fully accurate, but if it communicates to you a a concept that is real, then it is right to say it that way. This sensitivity will grow when you exercise it. At first, it may be hard to express, but if you keep at the attempt, it soon becomes an almost automatic interaction with God. Have you ever noticed there's a constant conversation going on inside of you that is not necessarily in words, but once it is allowed to come to the surface of your conscience, it almost speaks for itself. I find when I've I've got too much going on inside me, and I cannot shrink it down into a manageable phrase or phrases. It helps me to write out what I'm trying to say. So sometimes I'll write my prayers and just throw them, throw them in the garbage can. But even that doesn't help sometimes. And I have to just work at expressing what I'm trying to get out in English. Now, we will try to address better in a later session how praying in other tongues is evidently meant to help this need in us. But that's too much for us now. I'm just mentioning it to put it in your thinking. We'll hopefully get to it later. Now, I'm convinced after years of dealing with this in myself that God is helping me express the inexpressible in me to him. And this is not meant to necessarily be a kind of prayer that specifically asks for anything yet, but it's a kind of prayer that helps me learn to exercise my deepest inner feelings, desires, fears, longings, or even ideas. Any of us who've had children, uh, especially uh, (laughs) four-year-olds, we know what this is like. I I guess it's sort of like that with you and God, just a stream of consciousness. You know how a four-year-old will just just talk and talk and talk, and you're not quite sure what he's saying, and he's not quite sure what he, well, maybe he is totally sure what he's saying, but you have to work at it. To uh, He has to work at it, and you have to work at it. It's a bit of work. But it's mainly a work related to deepening relationship as we move toward eventually reaching a place of really forming a specific aim, which we will discuss in our next session. Before we head there, let's stay here for a moment and examine this struggle of just getting your heart out to God. Now, understand, I know I spent too much time at the beginning trying to get us to go beyond quiet, restful, intimate conversation with God. I'm not talking about that here. I'm talking about conversation with God, but it's gone to a different place. There's a pressure you bring to God that grows as your prayer becomes more honest, more 
cognitive, more in touch, more specific. I don't know how else to say it, but God seems to want us to press upon him our deepest desires, our real heart. The psalmist says, all my desire have I laid out before you. We have to learn to do that. We have to learn to do that. But to get you there, God has to deny, now get this, God has to deny the satisfaction of full response to you on your terms. Let me say that again. He's trying to get you to bring your deepest desires up into his presence in prayer and in relationship and in interaction. And we have to learn how to do it. And in order to learn how to do it, God will withhold a certain degree of satisfaction that you would consider satisfactory. In other words, God keeps the pressure on you so you will learn to keep the pressure on him. And in this way, you are sticking to each other like two boards smacked together with glue on each end of the board. (laughs) I know that's a bit irreverent when referring to God, but I think it must be okay because I I got it from P.T. Forsyth. So I guess it's theologically okay. If it ain't, it doesn't matter because I I still like it. I think it paints a good picture. If the pressure is released too soon on the boards, the boards don't cling. So the pressure is kept up till the union we need takes solid substance in us. Now, to make it more accurate, God doesn't need the glue on his side. He is the glue. So he doesn't need pressure on his side to stay connected. But we we do on ours, so he does it on his too, so that we can both stick. But before we move on, let's dwell on this a bit. You, you, you come to him because you have a need. But soon the need becomes clearly the need for more of him more than the thing you thought you needed. Then you have to come again and, and more often. And the need for prayer forms in you a greater need for more prayer. If you simply get quickly what you want, then prayer becomes like a drink machine. You put your money in and get out what you want, and the bonding never forms. God's not toying with us. This is just a a necessity. And again, remember your four-year-old, how he tells you what you already know, but you love to hear it anyway. Well, love loves to hear what it already knows. Love loves to hear what it already knows. God is far more wanting to be with you and you with him than he is wanting to be your drink machine. And fast-acting prayer may make us have faith in prayer instead of faith in God. So see why we have said uh, just a few minutes ago that prayer has to be as a life dynamic and not merely a spiritual exercise? Everything is about love and relationship. Everything is about love and relationship. Yet, at the same time, he's using this process to eventually bring you to a place where he can also entrust to you more demanding prayer concerns. But let's not jump ahead, though. We may enter into prayer out of some dire need, but no matter we will find in that action a lot about ourselves and our relationship with God by how we are able to or how we are not able to pray. Words fail us in prayer probably more than anywhere else except maybe when you first tried to ask a girl out the first time. Or if you're a girl, the first time you got to really, never mind. The very act of praying about how far you are from God brings you immediately close to God. 
Did you get that? This is a great thing. The very act of praying about how far you are from God will bring you immediately close to God. The very act of praying about how far you are from God brings you immediately close to Him, and you cannot pray wrong. You cannot pray wrong. For God will correct anything that needs to be corrected. It, it destroys prayer to be certain that you are praying the, the right prayer. Speaking of prayer as it, it, uh, it always works. It works. God's not a Coke machine. I've already said that. What we're aiming at is not making a machine work properly and quickly. The struggle to pray is the essence of trying to relate to a person, capital P. We are relating to a person, the person of all persons, and the struggle is necessary and pleasing to him, just like a parent finds his stumbling toddler to be pleasing as she stumbles over and over trying to walk. We should never be certain of prayer. We should be certain of God. If we are certain of God and his love for us, we can stumble and struggle and mess up our sentences and say all kinds of things we may not be proud of or things we didn't even mean to say, which is really a good thing because it reveals what's in your heart because out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. We are in the presence of the only one who knows us completely and loves us completely. And so there we begin to live in prayer. And living in prayer is the only way praying has life in it. Otherwise, you are a religious programmed lawkeeper doing your prayer duty. And neither you nor God enjoys that. To be sure of God's care for you is to move into prayer. When I know God loves me and God loves hearing from me and he enjoys my presence and he longs to hear from me, you think that doesn't move me to stop whatever I'm doing and run run to him now and then? Or even keep doing what I'm doing and speak to him now and then. To be unsure of that love, to be fearful that it's not there, is to discourage prayer to the point of annihilating it, obviously, really. So running to him is deeply pleasing to him because it is the great evidence of your trust in him. The best way to learn to pray is to pray. It may begin with desperate need, but it will soon grow into a longing to be with, not just to get from God. E.M. Bounds tells of his hunting buddy who loved to walk in the woods and hear the dogs run. But one morning as he was in the woods listening to the hounds, suddenly a tiny fawn burst through a clearing and ran straight toward him. It drove its terrified little face between his knees just as the dogs reached it. He reached down and picked up the little fawn out of the reach of the snapping dogs and kicked them back till they finally gave up and continued holding the fawn in safety till the dogs were gone. And he said to E.M. Bounds, Absolutely no power on earth could have hurt that little fawn once its weakness cried up for my strength. Did you get that? Let it soak in. No power on earth, or I might add heaven, could have hurt that little one once its weakness cried up for my strength. You think if a man can feel that way about a little animal, that God doesn't feel a million more times that way about you whenever your weakness cries out for his strength.
So we're moving to a place where God can entrust us with his heart about the things he wants to bring us into prayer about. We move from childlike intimacy to honest, open neediness. And we never fully outgrow either of those, but we do move from them as the primary position of our prayer life totally. The bridge that takes us from our initial concerns to his concerns is a living progression. I stress again, it's not a dead mechanical movement from block one to block two. It's a living, breathing life together with him. We only speak of those progressive steps, quote-unquote, out of necessity for identification. I'm hoping you will keep in mind the breathing, relational nature of all this. And I must add here also that not everyone will have the same experience or degree of calling into certain levels of conflict for others. It's not my place, nor can I tell you what should or should not be your place. I'm confident the Holy Spirit will help you know as you press in to know the mind of the Lord on these things. I think we must be careful when we discuss these levels of prayer that we don't accidentally make some folks feel condemned because they're not, quote, serious enough about praying. That's not it. You wouldn't be listening to this message if this was not meaningful to you. And I'll tell you, anybody who listens to this kind of teaching, God counts it as prayer itself. Because when you're that interested in understanding prayer, that itself is a prayer. You're praying You're crying out to God to understand even when you don't know how to say it. None of us can carry this calling all by ourselves. We must embrace our own calling, no more, no less, and we must respect others in the calling that they've got. But having said that, just listen to a few phrases from Paul on this whole issue of of the hard work of certain kinds of prayer. Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Because to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer on his behalf, having the same conflict that you saw in me and now here to be in me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 through chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, I labor, striving according to his energy, which he energizes in me mightily. For I would have you know how greatly I strive for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, and that they being knit together in love and in all the riches of the full assurance that comes from understanding. I love that phrase. The full assurance that comes from understanding. I'm praying for that for you. I pray that for my kids for my spiritual children, for my grandchildren, that they will come in the full assurance that comes from understanding. First John 5 says, uh, the Son of God has come that he might give us an understanding. Uh, Jesus said the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will guide you into all truth. He will open your understanding. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3, that God will grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our heart will be flooded with light, that we will understand the fullness of what we're called to, that you may know the mystery of God, which is Christ. Uh, We'll come back. We'll come back to these verses when we can. Colossians chapter four, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, he's from He's from your group. A servant of Christ Jesus salutes you, always striving for you in prayer, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. It's that same concept, that you may be fully confident because you understand, that you may stand mature, fully confident in the will of God. 
Now, there are many similar statements in the New Testament we could refer to, but this is enough to give us a basis for what I want to say here. I think it's plain that not everyone is going to be called to this level of concerned prayer for others. But some of us are. That doesn't make us better than anybody. I'll tell you, uh, we just had a big water problem in the house, and I can't tell you how grateful I was for a plumber who knew what he was doing and didn't have a, probably a great prayer life, but boy, did he know how to fix plumbing problems. I'm grateful for him. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, don't let the enemy, you know, I'm telling you, the, the devil is a religious pervert. He loves religion. And his biggest tool against us is some kind of self-righteous, stupid religious condemnation. Uh, don't you hear anything I'm saying here as a put down of you because you don't pray enough or you don't have that kind of prayer life or just all that kind of stuff. There's there's uh, so much wrong with that. You don't need to give vent to that at all. Don't give place to that at all. I, th- I think it's plain that not everyone is going to be called to this level of intercession and prayer for other people. But those of us who are... Uh, uh, make it possible for uh, them to do what they're called to do, whether it's being a plumber or whatever it may be. And I think it is also clear that according to these statements, for the whole church to come into the place of wisdom, purity, and power that God intends, it's going to be necessary that some of us become willing to engage in what evidently is a great conflict before the whole church can get there. And there has to be those of us who are willing to throw ourselves into that conflict for that purpose to be realized. It is not going to just happen. The word strive which Paul uses several times in these preceding verses, have to do with a conflict. He uses that same picture in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, uh, various other places. The word strive, the Greek word is where we get our word agony. Agonizomai. I'm sure you hear the word agony. Don't let that scare you. The word in our modern usage of agony stirs up thoughts of terrible pain and suffering, and understandably so. But Paul's usage of it referred to a gathering place where a demanding contest is going to be played out like the Olympic Games. Paul is not just saying I'm in terrible pain, all caused by caring for you. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm entering into the great arena of battle where mastery will be decided by evil or by good, and I am therefore throwing myself fully into this conflict on the behalf of your good. I'm fighting for you, for God. God was not just sitting back. He was energizing Paul to do that because God is the one who's ultimately doing that in us. But Paul was not waiting to see what the devil was going to do and then praying about it. He was taking the initiative in prayer for God's purposes in his people to be developed and worked out and perfected. Think of this where your loved ones, especially your children, are concerned. A moment ago when I was paraphrasing Paul and saying what Paul was not saying, I thought of all of us who have suffered or are suffering over our children. Paul was not saying, I'm in terrible pain and it's all because of you, (laughs) which is something we've all probably either said or been tempted to say to our kids. I I saw a great t-shirt on a lady a few days ago and said, don't worry, the hardest part of parenting is only the first 40 years. <laughs> now, if that's you, stop right now and take Paul's stance and say 
the correct thing Paul said, not the incorrect thing we thought he said about those he was striving for. Don't passively wait for the enemy to tell you how this or that situation is going to end up. Take the initiative as you set the pace for what is going on in the spirit where your children or loved ones or whatever situation you're concerned about is concerned. Prayer is prophecy. Prayer declares out loud on the basis of the finished work of the cross the will and destiny of God for your loved ones whom God loves more than you do. And battle for that in the Spirit. Cry out for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God, the Spirit of God, the presence of God in heaven And then the Spirit of God in you on earth, bringing the two together. Begin to throw yourself in faith through the power of the blood of the cross and strive for those you love who seem to be going the opposite direction, that you will travail in birth for them, that they uh, not just barely get right, but that travail that Christ be formed in them. This is what I pray for my kids when I pray for my grandchildren, it's what I pray for all my spiritual sons and daughters. I'm not satisfied that they just go to heaven for heaven. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for them to go to heaven. Please don't misunderstand that. But that's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible doesn't talk about Jesus died so you can just go to heaven. I mean, that's just not what the Bible says. It says Christ is being formed in us. Uh, I'll talk more about that uh, in our next session. But as we bring this session to a close, um, are you are you are you getting the fact that what I'm talking about here can't be turned into a formula? It can't be turned into five easy steps. I'm not going to write a book on the keys to prayer. I don't mean that to sound disrespectful to people who may use those terms. Those terms just don't, they don't touch me or awaken anything in me. Any, the moment someone starts talking about a method they have learned that unlocks the secrets of heaven, I'm, I'm totally, I'm, I don't only hear a word they say. Because I know enough about relating to God. Uh, this sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to, but it does. I just know enough about... Maybe it's because I was so messed up, so messed up that I just had to hold on to him and and learn to let him hold on to me. And so anytime God is reduced to an, uh, a key or a system or five easy steps, or uh, anytime I hear people talking about going into the court of heaven and pleading your case before the court of heaven. I mean, the most unhappy place I've ever been in my life is a courtroom. Uh, it's the saddest place on earth to me. And the whole judicial, juridical picture of God as a judge uh, who has to be appeased by some law book it's so anathema to me. It's so foreign to me. It is so opposite of the preciousness of the cross and the intimacy of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I just, I just can't even go there. And uh, if it's helpful to you in some form, more power to you. Praise the Lord. I'm glad for that for you. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I'll just tell you, this is all about ultimately love and relationship, and anything that diminishes love and relationship, I'm just not interested in it. So is there a time of warfare and wrestling? It, it always puts me in, uh, the picture I get in my mind is of uh, uh, the, the four Pevensey children in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where they meet Aslan, and they're, they're under the shadow of Aslan's love and protection, but the the battle with the the white witches upon them, and uh, Aslan sends them into battle, and uh, it's a real battle. It draws real blood. There's real 
conflict and real danger of, uh, of loss. And uh, Aslan doesn't do it for them. And yet, he does empower them to do it. So rather than me talk anymore, uh, can, we just, can we just pray right now? Because I really feel like I've probably said too much and said it the wrong way. Hope I didn't insult anybody. You may draw a lot of, a lot of help from some of those concepts I was kind of putting down on. But I think probably you hear my heart. You can see my point. Uh, I, with all due respect to any good you may get out of, quote, going into the courts of heaven, uh, if, if that helps you, fine. But I will say this without fear of contradiction. If you do learn from that, it will be a temporary place because God's desire for you to come into his courts is uh, uh, not to be a subject of law books, but to be his child, to be his son or daughter. Uh, so if if you're going through a process uh, of, of appealing before the courts of heaven about something, uh, that's okay. But just remember the judge is your is your papa. Run to him. Father, please don't let my overreactions be a hindrance to anybody who's seeking to obey you and draw near to you. Please take what I've tried to share, multiply it, bless bless what is blessable. Let it be uh, something that can feed our hearts and let that which I might have said that can't be blessed, just let it fall to the wayside, Father, like tears. But Lord, please uh, teach us to go beyond a prayer life that just seeks to be comforted seeks to be intimate with you on just that level. Help us love what you love and hate what you hate and enter into a a place of prayer that is doing alongside you what you care about on the earthly sphere. We We pray for that, Father. We ask for that. We trust you for that. We know that you will grant it because we know it's your will and we know that your word says if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And if we know you hear us, we know we have it. So we thank you that you will take us further up, further in in prayer until our life is an an energizing power for the lives of others who we care about, who you care about who don't know how to pray for themselves, don't know how to reach out and uh, appropriate those truths. Maybe, especially, Lord, for our own children or our own family members, instead of criticizing them or being frustrated or disappointed or fearful over them, that we will become a a source of energy for righteousness for them in prayer till Christ be formed in them. And we thank you for it. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.